Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Hello there, listeners. After over two years of recording and 80 plus episodes, I am elated to announce that Enduro Bearings has agreed to become a supporter of the Cycling in Alignment podcast. This is a double win for you, the audience. You have the opportunity to demonstrate your support of the show by making a purchase on the website cycling.endurobearings.com and you get to save some dollars while you trick out your whip. Use the code Colby Podcast to receive a 35% discount on any of Enduro Bearings excellent products. That's Colby Podcast, which is all lowercase and all one word. This includes the excellent XD15 ceramic bottom bracket, which is guaranteed for life. That means it may outlive you because, well, it's inanimate. Enduro also makes headsets, derailleur pulleys, as well as bearings for just about everything that rotates on a bicycle. So use your digits to make the keyboard mudras and head over to cycling.endurobearings.com and upgrade your favorite ride now. And remember, the proper number of bicycles is always N plus one, so think ahead. Thanks for listening. So you have your bike fitting studio and then you sell retail out of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, cool. That's awesome. I didn't know that. Yeah. And it's great because I have complete control over that domain. So it allows me to only sell stuff that I believe in and use myself. You know, I don't have nice. Like I, I make money bike fitting and coaching. (laughs) So I don't have to be beholden to just selling crappy products just to pay the rent or whatever. Um, No offense to anybody who's in that gig, but that's how retail goes. Sometimes you just have to sell tubes or, cliff bars or whatever you got to hawk to get get the bills paid i guess i don't know and and the bike yeah. industries as we know it's there's not a lot of markup it's been pretty rough a uh, couple of years so yeah ser- I, it is crazy dude i was just talking to a 20 uh, year giant 20 year rep uh been working for giant for like the last 10 through the covid swing mm-hmm. and hearing what they're dealing with now it's really interesting yeah because now everybody's overstocked right on mm-hmm. all the low and medium end bikes especially they're just flooded it's like everybody hit the panic order button during covid now (laughs) now it's all showed up but everybody bought everything so yes i think that's my understanding i'm not directly in the industry i'm you know floating around its periphery so but i've heard that from a lot of vendors and a lot of bike shop owners and stuff yeah i think that pretty much sums it up Mm. yeah and and it's hard to blame them i mean what do you do in that time when the you don't know what's going to happen in response? If I mean, everything was so unknown, it's like hard yeah. to really blame anyone, you know? I I agree. I think uh, COVID <laughs> is a good example of nobody knows what's coming down the down the slide, right? Oh yeah, I gosh, I feel like that could be a good point to uh, jump in on the podcast, but yeah, it's like that would COVID made me not believe in a five year plan anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I I mean I know that sounds horrible, but just as a, like from why? a business owner perspective, I'm like <laughs> literally, yeah. What ten year plan? Like why would I even attempt to do that? <laughs> Maybe wow. that's just because of where I'm at in the phase of my my business journey. But you know, mm-hmm. it's it that really did make. It, I think it humbled me in a way that I kind of needed at the time. You know. Mm-hmm. So okay, that's a good part to jump in. Then like 
where are you in your business journey? How long, when did you start Dialed Health or was that the first iteration and what inspired that? Like, how did you, how did you end up combining from what I've seen and what I've observed in our conversations, you basically sort of got your world started as a trainer and you studied strength. You're a certified strength and conditioning specialist, if I'm not mistaken. And then yep. you, you blended that with cycling. And now that's sort of your, your niche. It's not really a niche. Um, it's actually kind of a major intersection, I would say. And I'll premise this question by saying, I think that cycling is Neolithic in its understanding of movement patterns sometimes. I, I, okay, just to give you a taste, I've had one person that I know went to a fit in, I think it was in Atlanta somewhere. And the fitter told him that whenever he was riding his bike, he should never pull on the handlebars. He should only push. Ooh, this blew my mind. That hurts me to hear. Right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, what are you doing? And, and I can tell you that wasn't a completely isolated instance. I've had other riders who, who are, they're alien to the concept that when you stand up out of the saddle, you should be pushing with one leg in the power phase and pulling with the ipsilateral arm at the mm. same moment to offset that torque. And if you don't have proper core strength, then you're going to get, you know, twisting of the pelvis and all this, uh, we'll say instability in the spine or the shoulders yes. or all of those areas potentially. Right. So cycling is an area where it's a sport that's so traditional and has so much history that some of the rules of movement of some of the basic rules of, of biomechanical movement principles that are like one Oh one Oh one in the gym don't seem to apply in cycling. And another example of that is, okay, let's, let's say you, I mean, not you, Derek, because you're, you're who you are. You're an expert in strength and conditioning, but even someone who knows the basics of lifting, if they walked into a gym and they saw an eight-year-old kid who was like, Hey, will you teach me how to squat? What is the first thing you would say to them? What do you think? What do you think the answer to that is? Well, it's funny. I would, I, I, I would teach them how to squat, but not with any weight. At most, they'd be holding, they'd be bear hugging like an eight pound med ball. Right. Um, but, but I would pretty much ask them why. I'd probably say, don't even look at a barbell. Right. Um, but okay. I will say, working with younger kids, as frustrating as it is, it's really rewarding because when you can get a kid who has bad movement mechanics and then you can make yeah. them move well, it's empowering because you're like, you know what? Even if they're just doing bodyweight squats, but now they're not diving in their knees every single squat that they do. This yep. is going to probably that that movement pattern is ingrained at a young age and think about how many more reps they're going to do it correctly over their lifetime and how much better they're going to be as an athlete and as a human because of that. Mm -hmm. So it's funny. I think it's valuable to teach them alignment, movement, core bracing, those things. But mm. yeah, I, I would say walk away from the barbell eight-year-old. Great. Okay. <laughs> All right. That was a perfect answer. Cause I, what I was really going for is something a lot more simpler than that, but you, you have a great understanding of all that uh, nuance. So you gave me a, a more um, advanced answer, which was awesome. But uh, I would say if I were walking in the gym and I saw a kid pick up a barbell or anyone, an, an athlete who was just inexperienced, a, a, a gym child, we'll say a 42 year old gym child uh, with a, <laughs> with a low gym age, right? Even I don't even like the word gym because gym comes from gymnastics, but we're really talking about strength and conditioning. So I tend to use the word S and C anyway, small detail, but most people associate gym with barbells and machines. And we'll get to that nuance later. Mm -hmm. But if I saw someone go to the squat rack and then they wanted to do back squats and they had no idea what they were doing, the first disaster you would expect to see is usually a flexed spine. So, okay, we have to cue them That's to fair. straighten their spine because the, we don't want them to carry the weight of the bar 
using their thoracolumbar fascia or their lumbar musculature. We want them to lift the weight using the glutes, ideally, you know, and amongst other things. And, but we want to at least give them a chance to fire those muscles. And if their back is rounded, that's not going to work out. And then the knees would probably be the most common one that I would expect to see in in a, a generic archetype of someone who doesn't quite know how that exercise works. So, yeah. but in cycling, we have athletes who get on a bike and they sit like Mr. Burns, you know, with this incredibly flexed <laughs> posture, their sacrum is basically vertical. And then how do they get to the handlebars? They have to turn their back into a rainbow to get over to the bars. Yes. There's no hip hinge. There's no, and but if they went to the gym and squatted or deadlifted like that, my, what I'm getting at is any trainer who even had one sense of modicum of knowledge or two neurons holding hands would be like, whoa, we need to pause right here and let's talk about a better way to, to lift this weight. And But on cycling, that's fine. It's just the way they yeah. ride on the bike. And old school fitters have also coached athletes to ride with their knees intentionally oriented immediately towards the top tube, like grazing the top tube. Why? They think it's more arrow. They're afraid right. of knees that go out because knees that go out are like, you're a fat old guy. I, I don't like, but the fact that cycling is so uh, neolithic is the only adjective I can apply, like <laughs> ridiculously outdated and biomechanics are so under considered. I was going to ask what you meant by, I was going to ask you what you meant by neolithic. Like just it's stuck yeah. in the stone ages, you know, like, yeah. like cycling just, Stuck in 1903, like it's the Tour de France. Yeah, Let's it's wrap a tire around our shoulders and go ride a dirt pass at 21 RPM. I don't know. Which that visual I have respect for. The thought I, so of a guy so just I. cranking like a 70 cadence up a mountain with a cigarette hanging out of his mouth. I love it for some uh, reason. With a hat and a bike. Yeah, with a hat, no helmet. 29 pounds. Yeah. And and those stages were like 390K. Like over the oh, top, yeah. ridiculously long. And then there <laughs> you hear stories about guys who went into a town to weld their own frame when the frame cracked. I mean, that stuff is That's all it. super cool. Like all right. respect to those pioneers of the sport. However, respect. It, it's we, like when I see a guy riding a Harley down the freeway, with no helmet. It's like part of me is like, yeah, that's cool. And then part of me is like, that is the stupidest thing I've ever seen. Darwinian selection um, at its and, finest. <laughs> yeah. 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 But it, you make a really good point. It is almost like a double standard. Uh, and I wonder if it's because the position on the bike in general is far from good in general, from like a biomechanics standpoint, mm -hmm. it's almost impossible to make it something that someone who's trained with in like physiology at all, or, you know, kinesiology, biomechanics, whatever, whatever mm -hmm. realm of movement to look at it and say, that's good for your body. And right there are really good byproducts of cycling, obviously what it does with your heart and your lungs and uh, blood flow. And there's all these benefits, leg strength and the lack of impact. There, there are so many pluses. Mm -hmm. This is why counteracting that poor position off the bike is so necessary. It's like you can get the benefits of riding without all of the, the crap that comes along with it. Mm -hmm. um, but the fact that, yeah, it's acceptable to have a bad bike fit for one, because you even see some pros that are overreaching for pedals. And I mean, I even see these YouTube videos of people pointing out and I'm like, Whoa, that's like, if I can see it, it must be really off. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. when you see, especially your local fast guy or something with a crazy rounded thoracic spine or absolutely no hip hinge, no core activation, you see them stretching mm -hmm. their back constantly, whatever it may be. Uh, it's crazy that it's not 
known that that's a red flag and could be fixed. A lot of those people just think this is this is riding. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that comes down to an old school cycling belief that all suffering goes in the same box. Right? Mm. It's like you go out January 1st for your first long ride of the season, you know, whatever, or December 1st or whenever it is. And you go ride hundred K for the first time and your legs hurt because you just rode hundred K for the first time in a month or two. This is old school. You know, when we used to have like base training and your neck hurt because you weren't used to wearing a helmet and your your ass hurt because it was getting used to the saddle, but also because the saddle was not even close to right. <laughs> and your lungs hurt because you rode hundred K and that was the first like long aerobic load you had. But then also your junk was asleep because again, your saddle was completely wrong and probably in the wrong position or you were breaking it in. Uh, your feet hurt because the feet, the shoes were probably poorly fitting or a size too small because everybody back then thought that the best way to have a high performance shoe was just to buy a shoe that was at least a half size too small, if not a size too small and leather and just let it mold to your foot. So mm. you go ride in the rain in the winter and everything breaks in. And maybe that kind of worked out ish, right? But souls weren't as stiff then. So there was more forgiveness in the system. And, and so but the point I'm getting at is that all suffering was good. And now, like, I, I'm really struggle with this paradigm. Because there's still people who believe this paradigm, which I believe is is a broken belief system that really sports are fundamentally about this. This comes right to strength and conditioning. Sports are fundamentally about making yourself better as an athlete, about challenging yourself. How do we do that? Well, we base it off a premise. The premise is that right now, you as an athlete sitting in your chair and deciding to become a bike rider or a marathon runner or whatever you're going to do, you are not good enough. You suck. You're a normal person. And in order to become an athlete and have a chance to perform well or win a race, the only way to transform yourself into this mythical being, this athletic performer, is to go through the gates of pain, this tunnel, this, this fiery transition of hell where you have to <laughs> suffer. And I think, and then once you pass through that gate, then you, if you do it enough, long enough, and the, the lower you are at the beginning and the worse you are and the less talented you are, the more gates you have to pass through and the longer and more painful and more suffering you have to endure to get <laughs> to the other side, right? It sounds silly, but I really believe people actually eat this stuff up. And, and this paradigm, I believe, in part, was brought to us by grade school. There, there are three or four good examples I can give us of things we were brainwashed with in the United States, at least in grade school. One is, I, I would love to hear it because my kids okay. are coming of age of going to grade school and okay. there's been a lot of talk about this in my household. Okay. Okay. So these, this is on my list. I'm old. I'm 51. So I don't know if it's the same rhetoric that your kids are getting. Hopefully not. I got to open this window real quick. So the things I was, they attempted to brainwash me with in grade school were um, vitamin D is good for you. And how you get vitamin D is by drinking milk. Cow's milk specifically, <laughs> pasteurized homogenized cow's milk is ideal. Total crap. Uh, oh, also, if you eat red meat, you're going to die of a heart attack tomorrow. That was <laughs> firmly welded into our brains. And then another one was, in order to prevent injury before exercise, you stretch. And the by extension, people who were flexible were more resistant to injury. Total garbage. Mm. And then... The one that most applies to our conversation right now is a little more sophisticated, but it was taught to me in high school when I went into weightlifting class. And the rule was the only way to get stronger is to fail at the end of every rep. 
period. Every every set. Sorry, sorry. Every set. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. The last rep of every set, you had to go to failure to gain strength. Otherwise, and is this not the exact parallel, the model of you suck, and the only way for you to get better is to go through the gate of pain to become mm. enlightened? In strength training, you have to do that in every single set. At the end, the last rep has to fail. And what are we doing when we do a rep that's to failure in every set? We're training our nervous system to fail, <laughs> right? Hmm. And and also yeah. when you fail, by definition, your biomechanics break down. They, yeah. they right. So we're reinforcing a broken movement pattern into our neurology at the moment of failure, the most extreme stress possible. Like if you think about it, it makes no sense. And you of all people, I'm sure you'll agree with me. There are lots of ways to gain strength, lots and lots, without going to failure on every on every set. Yeah. Right? And one of the things I recommend all my members is to never actually go to true failure, always stop at a technical max. And a technical max, mm. by my definition, is the loss, the breakdown of form. Mm. The second your form starts to slip, that's when you pull it. Yep. And you don't push through the slip in form to get that rep or to at least go to a true failure where you're mm. dropping a bar, you're dropping a weight, because the, the benefits don't outweigh the actual risk of what you're going to put your body through. Right. Um, and especially if you go to a technical failure and you're breaking down on form that that's truly your failure anyways, mm -hmm. uh, because especially for cyclists, you're training for one, your holistic health. Like you want to be better in every way off the bike as a human, but, but you especially don't want to get injured in the training process of doing what you're doing, you, you, you know, for cycling. It's like, this should yeah. be the least dangerous thing you do all week. Right. And so, you know, God forbid you actually get injured during that part of your training. So yeah. let's, let's reel it in a little bit and let's make sure we keep it safe and progress gradually. Mm -hmm. But even with that, you know, it's almost like dieting. There is a point of discomfort that has to be there. Sure. And I think this is, this goes along with the mindset of people who always come and tell you, cause I, they come and tell me all the time, Hey man, when I start something, I'm all in, I'm on or I'm off. I do it all. And I go hundred percent or I completely stop. And when I hear that, it's the biggest red flag for me because I'm like, that's why you're not consistent because yep. you're this person who thinks, okay, now I need to go feel the pain like that every single day, go to failure. If it doesn't hurt, it doesn't work. Yep. And that's my mindset. But I don't care how tough you are. You just cannot sustain that. And again, you don't want to train your body to fail. Like you want to train your body to get close and then to pull through. Right. And that's when good coach and good training actually makes a difference. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean that you're weak at for it. It means that you're going to be in it for the, for a lifetime opposed to, you know, being in it for six months strong and then six months off. And that's your rotation. And every year you get a little worse. Yep. And unfortunately that is the truth for a lot of people. And the truth is, if you are consistent over time, what I've found, you you have to set specific goals, specific landmarks and things to push for. Like there has to be a point of progressive overload to get benefit at some sure. point. Yeah. But if you're consistent and you, even if you don't really plan that stuff, it's going, it's just going to happen. Like the pain is coming if you're consistent enough. Mm -hmm. You're going to end up in the rain on a ride. You're going to end up doing a ride way bigger than you expected. You're going to end up just having a day where you have to rely on every resource of discipline that you have to get through mm -hmm. the session all in the name of consistency, not even for some crazy PR. And I think people should turn their attention there and focus on that because 
this derails us a little bit, but I, I think just the concept of maintenance in general is actually super underrated and it's not mm. talked about enough. And, and I understand why it's not great marketing, really. I don't talk about it a lot. It's like, it's progress. It's like, you suck now, you want to get better. This is broken with you, you want to fix it. And mm-hmm. so I, I understand that's kind of how it has to work. But man, if everyone focused on maintenance, they'd probably get a little bit better over time and can stay consistently opposed to these crazy swings in their schedule. If I think that was well said. If everyone focused Thanks. on maintenance, then there wouldn't be all these, I have to fix it crises, right? Yeah. That's what maintenance is. <laughs> it's maintaining your body. It's maintaining your range of motion in your hips, in your shoulders, in your spine, so that you don't go for a long ride one day and go, oh man, my knee or my lower back or whatever, because you're consistently maintaining strength and movement in and and a bit of um range of motion in those joints right oh yeah i mean and it's funny because i've worked so hard to find out okay what what is the minimum that you can do off of the bike like let's talk about from strength training standpoint to to get true maintenance and also maybe a little bit of progress throughout the year like what Mm -hmm. is the actual bare minimum and Mm -hmm. one of the uh principles that we i you learn it as you come through uh school like through your certifications with strength conditioning and becoming a personal trainer mm-hmm. is super compensation and right. it's just your body's response to training basically the recovery cycle and making sure that you hit another session at the peak of the recovery curve so this is to break it down for someone listening you know after an initial training session let's talk about strength training in particular your performance is going to decline you're fatigued your body's not going to perform as well as it could but over the next two, three days, you should recover. And because of the adaptations you made in that strength session, you should recover to a point that you're now fitter than you were before mm-hmm. that session. This is the super compensation curve. That's usually over like a four-day span, usually. And you want to try and catch your next session on top of that curve so you can continue this stair step of progress. Mm-hmm. And if you wait a full week, it's very likely that, that you're going to not catch it on that curve. You're going to return to a baseline. And really what also happens, it's not talked about in this, is that you'll be in a cycle of being forever sore. If you're a cyclist trying to strength train and you just do it once a week, there's a chance you're just going to be forever sore. Every time you strength train, you're going to be sore for multiple days after your session. But adding in that second session on the super compensation curve, even if it's minimal, even if it's far from a progressive overload session, you would maybe get like rated as an RPE of five or six even that session is going to truly help you maintain and actually make a little bit of progress because of the super compensation curve, but also because it's more rate, your body's more accustomed to it. You're going to feel less sore. And I mean, it's crazy because this makes me want to talk about specific movements throughout the week, but it allows you to have a more balanced program, hit the seven effective movements, which are things that I focus on and, and again, stay consistent in the long run, but dude, it just Mm -hmm. does not let you actually it doesn't let you actually uh, uh, like maintain or get worse. (laughs) No, that's okay. That's, that's great. I think that's a really important concept for people to understand. And um, that, okay. To rewind a bit on what you were saying about people who you said a a huge red flag is when you have a client who comes in and they're telling you about how tough they are and about how much they want to accomplish. And I agree. That's a red flag for me too. It's like, that tells me that they're really, entranced by this old school belief system that they have to pass through this gate of pain and suffering. And that's the only way for them to get better. And even more problematic is 
on the one hand, we have cultural icons like David Goggins and Jocko Willink, who I would argue both of those guys have different messages and Jocko has a lot of great teachings, but I am concerned that he glorifies that mindset, right? And if David Goggins, David Goggins doesn't glorify that mindset, I don't know who does, but this is the guy right. who does like a thousand pushups in a day or just preposterous crap, you know? And it's Stay like, hard. good for you, dude. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Go for it. Like, this is amazing. But also, you should have a giant asterisk next to every single post you do, which is like, by the way, don't try this at home because you're not me. I'm a freak of nature. I'm one in a billion and I can do this. And also, I'm crazy enough to go do it. So this is world. This is WWF is what you're watching when you watch David Goggins do a thousand pushups in a day. Like, that's what it is. It's <laughs> entertainment. It's not meant to inspire you to actually go try it. That's my I take think on it. it. I, well, I think it does for some people who who need right. it like it, it's it's like uh so that's the other side i, I think some people couch. need it yeah, yeah dude i some I, you know this is uh, my belief i i genuinely give people the benefit of the doubt honestly i'm a natural encourager i like mm -hmm. i don't look down on people for doing whatever like there i really couldn't have less judgment uh as a trainer because everyone is on their on their journey you know i've had clients who are 400 plus pounds like it's a very rewarding process to train people who are just getting started or at the extreme ends of un, un, unhealthy, being unhealthy. Yeah. But I'm going to be real. Some people are genuinely lazy and genuinely make excuses and need somebody like Goggins. Mm -hmm. Like they, they need somebody to wake them up at 5 a.m. and scream in their face and tell them to, you know, get, grab get life by the balls and go. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? Like some yeah. people do need this. And I think... Mm -hmm that's where that content comes in. Like I know that when I was really focused on having my own business and became um, like had this entrepreneurial mindset, I, I actually took in a lot of content like that, like motivation stuff, because at the time I was very much a dreamer and not a doer. And mm -hmm. I kind of needed a kick in the butt, you know, because I had mm -hmm. to learn the hard way that no one was really going to do it for me. So mm -hmm. I, I think it has its place. I just wanted mm -hmm. to say that because I know exactly what you mean. Uh, hmm. it, it, I think the WWE comparison is actually pretty spot on, <laughs> pretty spot on. Okay. So I, I definitely appreciate that. And I agree. There are people who need a kick in the ass. The problem comes, I think when they get that kick in the ass from Jocko or David Goggins or, um, whoever, yeah. and then they go out and they do it, but they, they proceed under that paradigm that the only way for them to get better is to smash themselves pretty much every day because that's what David Goggins does. And this is what got them on the track. Now, getting them started, getting the train moving on the tracks is one thing. That's good. So if we're using Willink or, or Goggins for that motivation, then great. Or um, I keep thinking of that Tony Robbins, the motivational speaker, right? Oh, yeah. Whoever it is, like whoever you're going to go chase and, and be like. So we get the chain, train moving. That's awesome. But the paradigm is still broken in which we need to smash ourselves into oblivion because then all we've done is trade in poor health for injury down the mm. road, potentially. Because if you yeah. smash your, if you're still working 59 hours a week and juggling three kids and a divorce and a new car and a new house and a pool and all the things that we have at the age of 48 or whatever, and your job stress, and and then you're just getting up at five in the morning to do intervals on Zwift because it's how you're going to be good at Unbound or whatever, then you've just traded in uh, some obesity and some potential health problems for now we've got knee problems, back problems, potentially, we've got 
other metabolic challenges, right? This is the thing you were saying about cycling. Like there's so many pluses to riding a bike. There's so many good things. We, we clean up our metabolism. We upregulate our metabolism. We burn fat. We we're going to maybe not, some people might gain muscle. A lot of them won't, but at least we're going to, we're going to start to detoxify our bodies, right? We're going to deal with hormonal challenges of being sedentary because all your regulatory hormones start to get screwed up. So we're going to have all the happy exercise chemicals, which do so much for people's outlook on life and their relationships with their family and their friends and their coworkers. It's, there's so many positive benefits to cycling, but we trade out crappy posture and potentially knee and back challenges and, mm -hmm. and other, you know, and adaptive um, muscle length shortening that we get from when, when we're at the bottom of the stroke. We don't fully extend our knee and we never even come close to extending our hip fully on the bike. Right. Unless we're yeah, standing, and, maybe you kind of get close, but. And on the extreme end of cycling, when you start putting in crazy volume, a lot of TSS, there is this point, And I wonder about this all the time. Mm. At what point is it really not healthy anymore? You know, is riding a hundred miles for anyone technically healthy? Like at what point are we surpassing? This is good for your health versus this is purely for performance. Yeah. This is an athletic endeavor. This is something for things beyond your own health. And it's like, what, what is that right. threshold line for most people? Like, do you, have you thought about that for like a, for sure. like some yeah. kind of average that you could say, okay, beyond this point, you're probably mm. not doing your body any good. Well, but I guess then it comes down to lifestyle recovery, like all the other yes, the, the right. factors, you know, it's the like other things, how much yeah. are you doing to compensate for that? So we could have a rider who rides uh, 60 miles every Sunday and does three Zwift workouts and they do nothing else. No, not a single modicum of movement in any of their plane. They don't pick up anything heavy. They don't stretch. They don't move. They don't walk. Nothing. That person might hit health challenges quite quickly in their cycling trajectory. They might do that for a year or two and end up with some sort of sensation of twistedness, which left unchecked will manifest into we don't know what, right? And if their posture is really poor, they might end up with, I don't want to catastrophize things, but this is just what I've seen. Like people end up with disc bulges, yeah. they end up with uh, torn labrums, things like that. So, you know, and it, it comes down also to your nutritional habits, your hydration habits, right? If you're chronically dehydrated and you're doing all that indoor riding and you're riding hard, then how, how healthy is your labrum going to be when you're smashing that femur up against the top side of that hip, every single pedal stroke for <laughs> all those reps while you're going hard, unconsciously, you're not even close to thinking about form or core or axial extension of the spine because you're just trying to keep up with some guy on Zwift or some gal. So when, so that person isn't riding very much, but they might hit health challenge quite quickly. On the other hand, we might have an athlete who's riding several hundred miles a week, but they're also doing a lot of movement in other planes. They're stretching. They are uh, using proper stretching. Maybe they're using Eldoa. They're using other complementary forms of exercise to offset this movement pattern in cycling, right? They're working on spinal extension. They're making sure their pec minor isn't, you know, three centimeters long and they're not always reaching for the bars like <laughs> in, trapped in the arrow position, et cetera. And so they're, they're working biomechanically to offset these postural compensations that come about from excessive riding. And they're also hydrating really well and they're getting body work done. And whatever other alternative, or we'll say um, outsourcing additional means of support for their bodies and their nutrition is spot on and they're eating like crazy mad hippies. And they, so they get lots of micronutrients in their diet. So they've got yeah. a high antioxidant capacity in their diet. So 
we might imagine this type of person might do a lot better over the long term and cycling might, but they're riding three or four times as much as our first Swift guy. So you ask kind of at what point does cycling become destructive to someone's health, right? You know, is yeah. it a certain number of hours of riding? I think that's what you're getting at, or maybe it's a certain intensity or number of races or number of years you do it. And I would offer that it depends on the individual and and how much they're compensating for cycling or or how much of a movement program they have to keep their cycling in balance. And it's not just movement. It's about nutrition and hydration and all the things. And it's also about how they cycle because if they're smashing themselves into the ground, every workout, like we talked about, just barely coming up for air all the time, then they're probably going to have a much shorter half-life in the sport than someone who's a little more measured in their efforts or has more moderation in their training and isn't trying to pass through that gateway of, of pain and suffering to become uh, a good little boy or girl. So do you mind if I ask you a question about that real quick? Sure. How often do you find that people are doing that? Like, I know that's the more old school uh, viewpoint, and that's mm. been something in the past that a lot of people, it seems like they have done, but how many people do you find are kind of overtraining? Maybe even we'll throw under eating into that mm. category of this, uh, the category of the gateway of pain. Yeah. And so, how many people are you really finding do that? Because I'm always, wondering the the truth behind it because you have to read through someone's own perception of what they think overtraining or hard training is yeah. versus what the reality of hard training is on the real spectrum. Mm. Yeah. So what do you, what do you think? That's How great, often is it truly? I mean, that's a great question. It's a lot more prevalent than I hoped it would be, or I would like it to be in modern era because it, I feel like that broken story, that old dried up, dead horse should be long gone. But I know that's also because I went through that whole belief system. I mean, I, I was the original subscriber to the gateway of pain, you know, back in the day that said, I've always been, I'll, I'll blow a little sunshine at my own skirt and say that I've always been a critical thinker as a cyclist. And sometimes that's gotten in my own way because I'm like, wait a minute, maybe there's a better way to do this. So I, I had a little Tim Ferriss streak in me, even as a junior, I was like, all these guys are training so freaking hard, but is that necessary? So I sort of thought about it a lot. And times I tried these weird experiments that get me off track. And then there are other years where I was like, nope, we got a gold school. The only way is the hard way. And I trained like a maniac and I did really, really well for several months. And then I had a thermonuclear explosion and had to carry on the rest of the season on basically on fumes, like really nothing. Yeah. That happened a couple of years for sure in my career. So I've, I've kind of bounced around in that whole arena quite a bit. And, and I think I've uh, sniffed under enough rocks to know what works for me and when to push the comfort envelope and when to, to do enough work to provide super compensation without doing excessive damage. And I remember the first year I kind of nailed that formula. I got to, I don't know, the first race of the year in March or whatever it was like Valley of the Sun or something a couple of weeks before Redlands or a month before Redlands back when that was the schedule. And I remember just being there and being like, wow, I feel really fit, but not tired, not fatigued, not smashed at all. It was like the first time that I really had the light bulb go off where I could see in myself that whatever I had done that winter had brought me to a place where I was fit enough to compete and be there and, and start the season. But I was carrying almost no residual damage from that. And it hmm. shocks me how many people even this is this is why I think. It shocks me and and disappoints me a bit that people still don't get this because how many years has Training Peaks been around, and they have it right in their performance management chart. There are three lines, <laughs> you know. There's your 
green line, which is your chronic training load, your CTL. And then there's your, your seat, your, uh, acute training load, your ATL. And then there's your TSB and your TSB is how smashed you are. And you go smash yourself all the time. And your TSB is always negative. This is what people do. And we can, I have a lot of problems with load charts. I do not think they are the, the savior of our sport because they don't account for so many things. They only account for load oh, on the yeah. bike with a power meter, right? Let, I mean, how good I, is it? I love talking about this because right. I'm trying to figure out like some type of TSS score for strength workouts. Mm. And it's, it's it feels it, it feels so impossible. It won't but also, work. It won't work. Because all those ride, algorithms are based on aerobic load. TSS is calculated. There's It's heavily biased mm. towards aerobic load. So it'll never fully account for a strength session. And you know, you can, you can mess yourself up in one long set of kettlebell swings. I mean, if you do it right, you can really torch yeah. yourself depending well, on how you can you also do one heavy one rep max that sure. absolutely destroys your body for three days. Yeah. That didn't raise your heart rate past zone two. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, but like the actual physiological damage is so high Yep. that yeah, you're the, the real fatigue from it. And then also even the real training benefits from it. It's so hard to actually judge. And this is why I'm, I'm happy that it seems like the pendulum is swinging back from data, 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 science, science, science to a little mm -hmm. bit more. Let's think logically. Let's look at the big picture. And that's one reason I love you so much as a coach is because you look at all of it. Like, you know, like this data is incredible. It's taught us so much and we can use it, but also this is not the end all be all the TSS score that you know, whatever program is spinning out is probably inaccurate because half of your rides this week were on the mountain bike and you descended 10,000 feet on black diamond trails. Right. I mean, right. so, so yeah. how do you, how do you look at that as the end all be all number? And that's when you mm -hmm. have to teach someone to be introspective and listen to their own body and feel their own body. And if they mm -hmm. can't learn that skill and they're completely relying on the data, their performance is going to be so unreliable because they're going to be so, it's just not real. It's just not real life. It is just, it's literally just not real life. So uh, they're also missing yeah, that, the point of athletics, which is to strengthen that connection with the feelings, the right? feeling. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, that's a, that's a really good point. People who are under the belief that feelings are meant to be felt, not talked about, right. There's that, that's another old school thing is like, we don't talk about feelings. We don't, we just sort of, shove them to the side and go do stuff, right? Do you think though right now, okay, and it's funny because maybe this generate, the generation between us is like how we have a different perspective because you really felt the old school mentality and I, and I mm -hmm. didn't really as much. I feel like I've come up in more of a mentality that's been almost too forgiving, be mm -hmm. almost a little bit too kind to yourself. Let's talk about it. Your, your feelings a little bit too much, like to the okay. point where we're going to now create problems that aren't even really there, but you're overthinking yeah. it. Yeah. And so yeah. it's hard because I, I, I do have this thought sometimes where it's like, okay, you know, I think this has gone a little bit too far to where, again, it's like, we need to, we need like that real conversation about how you feel. And we just got to sprinkle a little bit of David Goggins on top of it. We just, just a <laughs> touch of it. Like we got to bring it back a little bit, you yeah. know, or, yeah. you know, it's cool. We're talking about this, but we're now talking in circles and we're not solving a problem. So it's time right. to shut up and just put your head down and, yes. and put yourself through the process. Yes. And let's, let's talk after this next training session. Let's talk after this next event. Let's talk after this mm -hmm. next week. And 
that's one thing I love about training so much is like, gosh, you could start a session with these problems. And by the end of it, they're just not even problems anymore. You know what I mean? It's like, it just clears your head or you find that answer you're looking for, uh, 10 minutes before you're done. I I love that kind of stuff. (laughs) That's a great point. You know, I, for me, I see these as just two extremes on the same spectrum, right? We can Mm. completely ignore our feelings, be obsessed with data, be that's the fire mind. That's like data driven. I just want numbers. I want, I want, concrete proof right that's a common thing when we worship at the altar of science like i just want to know tell me how many concrete, to do the evidence the evidence yeah. show me the evidence based and, and everything is numbers and data and and nothing else matters these are people who train I, I started working with an athlete recently who hasn't used a hurry monitor in several seasons he was like yeah my last coach told me it didn't need it i just needed power I'm like baseball oh. you know I would have respected it more if they didn't have any data, but just power is kind of brutal. Yeah. Right. So, so that's, that's just one end of the spectrum is that mentality of just give me the numbers, tell me what to do, no feelings, everything is cold and science and hard. And then the other side is all hippy dippy feeling, you know, hold on. I gotta, I gotta do some ohms before I start this five minute interval (laughs) or whatever. And I'm kind of making fun of myself here a little bit because I tend to gravitate towards that side at times. (laughs) <laughs> and there's the middle is like, all right, let's feel the feelings. Let's mm-hmm. see where we're at. Let's be in touch with our body. Let's actually wake up in the morning and not just do an interval workout because Colby told me to, or Derek told me to, or whoever my coach wrote it in training peaks or today's plan or whatever program you're using. And, and I'm just going to do it like a robot and just stare at the numbers. Let's check in and feel like, is this the right thing to do? This is a really hard day of training. Does it mean it's the day to do it is today? Oh no, what do I do? I have to make a decision. Can I Google this? Like, should I do intervals today? No, like consult yourself. The wisdom is in here. It's in here. It's mm. in your heart. It's in your gut. You know, it's not in your brain. This is for division and long division and algebra and geometry and looking at power files. Like when you make a decision like that, you have to consult everything from the neck down. Hmm. God forbid from the belly button down. Ooh, scary. And <laughs> <laughs> and you just listen, right? Like that's why we use the feeling. I don't even, I don't even know what that reference was for, but I'm not going to ask. <laughs> <laughs> Some people are afraid to talk about genitalia. So oh, okay, fair <laughs> yeah, like what goes on down there, right? <laughs> well, I've done a whole podcast on my vasectomy, so we'll go wherever uh, we need to okay. go. All right, cool. <laughs> I, I'm a bike fitter. So I have conversations with women and men about their stuff all the time. It's just part comes with the territory, right? That, no that is kind of there. Yeah. yeah, that that's actually interesting too, because even as a trainer, you know, you're teaching someone to hip hinge, you're teaching someone to activate their glutes. If you're teaching someone a posterior tilt, and I mean, you're pretty and like bracing their core. I mean, you're pretty much teaching them Kegels. So you have to like have these professional yep. conversations. Yep. Um, and it is yep. funny how you can get in that mindset as a professional, and you don't even think in a weird way at all, which is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but you mm-hmm. do have to be. Uh, very clear about how you address things sometimes yep. and, and go about it the right way. So yes. kind of a side note, but yeah, yes. I know what you mean. And you've got to be selective about, about terminology. And even mm. when you, if you do physical assessments with people, you have to be quite careful about how you use your hands and how you touch them. Yeah. Cause there's a, there's a, a real clear line between, you know, checking someone's SI joints and grabbing their ass, right. To use a simple example. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's a very fine line. <laughs> and we want to, we want to be intentional so that nothing's misconstrued. Right. And no one gets the wrong. 100%. Idea. Yeah. 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 So, 
and, and that also that's like a lot of training conversations anyways too like you know you have to be so delicate sometimes about how you present a, like a weakness to a client or yeah. even sometimes like you know we mentioned it on my podcast but um even mentioning a strength to someone because again you don't want it to go to their head the wrong way yeah and you want to have some relativity to it so they know where they're at in the real grand scheme of things but you have you have to give them credit what we had talked about on my podcast was when someone comes to you and said hey what i lack for in talent i'm gonna make up for in hard work yes do you remember that that's kind of where we we ended up and so yeah, when you tell someone like they're such a hard worker, you know, you have to make sure that they're not the type of person that's going to take so much pride in that, that it now they start not paying attention to form or executing things specifically. And they turn into this like bulldog that's just breaking stuff. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's funny that the, the communication back and forth with the client, that's like a real art, you know, yeah. you, you that really takes experience. There's no amount of education that will teach you that besides working with people in various ways. I absolutely agree with that. I'm, I'm always thinking about queuing because how many times have you had clients come to you where you see some crazy movement pattern and you're like, okay, let's unpack that. And then you have a conversation with them and you realize that, that what they took is, okay, my last trainer told me that I rounded my back during my squats. And so now they walk around like this and they literally (laughs) will not flex or extend their spine in any region. They're just completely mummified in the torso. I've had clients come to me like that. It's like, all right, great. That's awesome. We want to protect you from injury and we want your spine to be stable, but we also have to have a spine that moves because, well, an old saying in yoga is the yogi is as young as the spine is flexible, right? Which not everyone would agree (laughs) with that. But when we have stuck parts in our spine, you know, vertebrae that are glued together or don't move well, then that tends to cause problems in other places. So the uh, the queuing's huge. You know, it reminds me absolutely huge. When I was a became a trainer, for this is a perfect example because I had finished my textbook, I had passed my exam, but I went to do an in-person practical. And you have to cue someone's overhead squat. And this is a way that I test a lot of people's posture. It's a very safe, simple way to get a good idea of someone's alignment and their their mechanics in general. Yeah. And at that time though, I had zero training experience with anyone. I just knew, like I knew what to do, but I did not know how to communicate it. Mm. And so I remember trying to cue someone through a movement and I was getting frustrated because they didn't understand what I was saying. And I literally went and grabbed their leg and moved it into the position that I wanted it to be in. And I literally out loud said, just do this. this. And I moved their leg and I remember I got reamed for it (laughs) by my, uh, instructor. And it's funny now too, especially post COVID, you know, Mm. you work with people through the computer. Uh, and if you don't have good cueing, you don't have anything (laughs) like you, that, I mean, Mm. your communication has to be so spot on. Mm. And I'm very thankful. I've done so many years of in-person to, to get to the point where if I really can't get there, like, I know I need to go take a different route and I know I need to keep trying different routes. And, um, you know, I don't, I don't get so hung up on the way that I would understand it. And I have, to, you know, you have to find out the way they would understand it. So mm-hmm. kind of, kind of another side coaching tangent, but it, dude, mm-hmm. I bring these up because it's just fun to talk to other coaches. You know, I used to work in gyms with people, you know, a staff of like 40 guys, uh, and girls, and mm-hmm. we would, you know, shoot the bull constantly. We're constantly looking at each other, mm-hmm. learning from each other, talking about what we're talking about now. And, uh, I do miss it a little bit. So if anybody's listening, mm-hmm. like, yo, 
it, it, that's why I, I, I get stoked huh. about these conversations. Yeah. That's, that's probably, a, that sounds like a really cool learning environment, right? I mean, this is one thing about cycling coaching that's a bit odd is it can be very isolated because you, especially if you have your own coaching business, you're just writing training for your athletes and you're sort of putting it out there and they're getting better, hopefully. And you're like, okay, I'm doing it right. But there aren't that many sort of peer review situations. There aren't other coaches looking at your training or asking critical questions like, why did you pick this workout when this athlete is preparing for this hill climb? Why did you give them these intervals? And then you get the chance to explain yourself. Well, they told me this and that, and they live here and they don't have a long hill. So we solved the problem with these short intervals. And you're like, okay, that kind of makes sense. I can see why you did that. Maybe we want this, but in that environment, it sounds like you learned a lot, but to reverse a bit, you know, I, I think queuing is, is so fundamental. And one of the great expressions that comes to mind from this is, are you familiar with a woman named Joanne Averson? Averson? No, no. uh, She lives in the UK somewhere. She's a movement person. She came from kind of Thomas Myers, Rolfing, that um, genre, or I don't know if genre is the right word, but she talks about the gift of notice. And, and, she's very well crafted in her queuing. And she talks a lot about how to cue athletes in the right way or cue her clients and patients in the right way to try to have the right impact in their movement. And it is such a delicate operation because I've, I have had clients come to me who've been cued in a certain way. And then they've taken that habit and it's sort of uh, multiplied. It's grown like compound interest over time into something we don't want it to grow into Mm -hmm. mummified torso being the example. But I often also have the same internal discussion and the same refinement process around cueing my athletes when I'm coaching them to have posture during bike fit, because this goes back to the, the origin of our conversation on how a lot of athletes just get on a bike and just start smashing pedals. And they don't, there's no consideration of posture. There's no consideration of uh, diaphragmatic breathing or, or action of the diaphragm, right? There's no consideration for expansion of posterior ribs. There's no consideration for, actual extension of the spine or shoulder orientation or position, right? Uh, protraction, elevation, et cetera. They just get on the bike and grab the bars and just start smashing. And then their junk hurts or their knee hurts or whatever. And then they see you. And so I have to reverse engineer everything. So I, I put them through a movement screen and then I put them on the bike and I just film them. And I tried to not cue. I, I cue as little as possible. I'm always minimalist. And then I just show them the video of them riding from different sides. I take video from front, back and left and right. And sometimes from the superior view as well. And I say, what do you see? And that's really a powerful moment because when you show an athlete themselves, you get a lot of learning on their part. They often, that's a really good idea. That's a, I should almost do that, but with my overhead squats, ask them what they see before I give them my feedback. Mm -hmm. I've never thought of doing that. That's a good idea. And so it educates both of you because you get to see what they understand about movement. And sometimes it surprises you what they do see. You're thinking, okay, the saddle's way too high and, you know, their, their thoracic extension is, uh, or they're locked in thoracic flexion, right? So they've got kyphotic tendencies and the shoulders are protracted to the extreme, right? And then they say it and they go, well, yeah, I've got this, this hump right here. And it's a, but sometimes they don't see it. It's always, so part of the, it's really valuable for me to go through that experience because it teaches me what their lens is. Yeah. Well, this is what I see. And I see a bit of this and that's offering the gift of notice, right? This is what I notice is you're shifting in the saddle a lot, or 
uh, you, your face is always oriented vertical. Even when I ask you to get in the drops, you've got a very vertical face. And when you have a very vertical face, we're going to get, we can be naive, just like all the people who live in LA. Um, <laughs> wrinkles are bad. So when your face is really vertical and you're in the drops and you've got all these wrinkles here, what does that tell us? There's a lot of, a lot of extension in your cervical spine. You know, your wrists are here and you've got all this wrinkles. What does that tell us? Your bar angle probably isn't right or your hood angle isn't right. So we, so I, I give them that notice and I go through and talk about that. But then I have to, a big part of it for me is first I have to educate them that we do care about posture on the bike, right? Which you, you can, I would assume as a strength and conditioning coach, you could take that for granted that someone goes to the gym and they hire you. What they expect is for you to tell them what, how to lift a weight right? How should my shoulders be? Where should my knees be? Like, like even clients who are pretty clueless probably walk through the door with some guess that that's going to be what this is about. You're not just going to let them smash stuff and pick stuff up anyway. You're going to cue them on how to do it properly so they don't get injured and so they can more effectively make force. But some cyclists have no clue that that's even a thing. So I have to educate them like, oh, we don't actually want you to sit like you're flipping channels. We want you to sit in a slightly active athletic posture that's going to help you have a more stable spine and hips and shoulders. And we want to maximize the capacity for breath and maximize the joint angles for force transmission on the pedals, right? Etc. Yeah. And we want to maximize the handling capacity of your bars so that you don't fall off your bike and break your collarbone, et cetera. So I have to educate them that we care about this. And then I have to cue them on how to do it. And if I make all these changes to their bike, I, you know, push their saddle back or push it forward or whatever, or raise the bars or lower the bars and change the bar angle. If I don't cue all those postural adaptations to the new contact points, then they're going to get on the bike and try and ride it the way they always did with a flex spine mm. or, you know, pointed toes or whatever. And the whole fifth session, the whole fifth session is going to be useless because if you move the it's contact so points, but don't coach them, then how are they ever going to, how are they ever going to make use of those changes? It's so refreshing to hear you say that because. I have to oversimplify a lot of content I put out on Instagram specifically because it's such yeah. a it's a short form uh, content platform. You can yeah. never go into depth on something. At least most uh, channels can't do that. It's very hard to honestly stop people from scrolling if something's overly complex. Right. But the if I had a nickel for everyone that commented on a video I did about back pain, about mm. just get a bike fit, just get a bike fit. Mm. Uh, you don't have to do these exercises. You just get a bike fit. Oh, neck pain, just get a bike fit. Right. You know, I'd be, I'd be a very wealthy man because mm. it is true that every, and I think it should be a given. It's like, everyone should go get a bike fit, a good, hopefully get a good bike fit. It's like one of the best investments you can make. You know, if it's between buying a more inexpensive bike and getting a bike fit versus getting a better bike and not a bike fit, I would absolutely save money on the bike, get a proper bike fit. Yep. And that, that like that's how important it is. But mm. with that said, you can have the perfect bike fit and have your body so out of alignment that you still are in pain and vice versa. You could be somebody who has a horrible bike fit, but your body runs so well and it's so in line that for a short period of time, you could actually feel really good on it. Mm -hmm. um, it'll probably catch up to you. I don't yeah. recommend it, right. but you you really need both. You need a great bike fit and you need the good biomechanics. So the fact that you teach is really great. I was actually just talking with another couple bike fitters uh, because I'm doing a post on hand numbness about okay. like how to fix it with while riding. And I want to talk about what they saw 
uh, in regards to that specifically. And, and they were both very much on par with what you're saying is that as much as you get the bike in the right position, you have to show them how to actually ride it. <laughs> yeah. And I love that you're doing that. Yeah. It's so cool. Yeah. I, 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 I'm going to pump this podcast so people can hear that five minutes cool. alone. Cool. Awesome. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I mean, it's a thing. Uh, so I think cycling is a bit unique because bicycles are so efficient. They're such efficient machines. They're really amazingly efficient at converting our metabolic energy into mechanical energy. Right. But they're so efficient. They're so stiff and they're so fast. And you can go, you can gain so much speed so easily on a modern bike that the problem, the downside of that is that modern bikes camouflage crappy technique. I mean, mm -hmm. you can have a guy show up to a local 10 mile time trial or a woman on a $14,000, whatever, super fast Cervelo or Trek or something. And they'll average 27 miles an hour on a flat course. And they can be just ax chopping the crap out of the pedals, just a complete train wreck, you know? But then you've got someone who actually has good pedal stroke and suplex and good movement patterns and whatever, and they go 29 and a half. And they're both impressive numbers. Like cycling camouflages bad, bad technique. Whereas other sports, if you have horrible technique when you run, you're going to be injured constantly. Like there's no way yeah. around it. It's too high impact. If you have mm, horrible technique, I see you mean. cross country skate skiing, you're going to fall over constantly because it's so dependent on balance. If you have bad enough technique swimming, you're going to drown. <laughs> um, other sports require more technique. And even culturally, other sports teach technique more than cycling does. Oh, because they break every fundamental down. And that's what practice is opposed yes. to like when bikers get on bikes, they just play the they whole go hard. sport constantly. Yes. And they try and play every aspect of the sport at all the time at once. Yep. yep. And it's very hard to get people to step back to do drills. It's actually a little bit more common in mountain biking, like corner drills, mm -hmm. things like that. Mm -hmm. And when you said cycling can camouflage bad technique the first thing i thought of was mountain bikes because i come from a downhill racing background yep. and so especially now with enduro bikes and bigger travel bikes e-bikes especially people opt for these 170 mil travel bikes when the trails they're riding really require more of a downcountry bike more of like a 130 maybe 140 max and it's 100 the perfect bike for the trail but they don't want to feel any bump they want yeah. every bit of their technique that's not up to par be hidden by the bike and even mm -hmm. though they'll go slower they have a better experience because they're like i can get away with so much and you yeah. know it's it doesn't it's cool it's like you're out yeah. there to have fun and yeah. if that's yeah. going to be the way that you have the most fun cool but it is hard for someone that like myself to see the clear option as what's ideal and and not have them go for it just because they don't want to learn the skills or something it's uh right. Right. It is interesting how that, that comes to play. Cause you're so right about the running and the swimming and yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Awesome conversation so far, Derek. I'm, I'm really appreciating this. I just wanted to hear a bit of your, some top threes and, and I wrote you this in the email, but I, I kind of, I kind of hate top threes a little bit because I think they're a very superficial look at things. So, but I also know, as you mentioned, you know, you do a lot of Instagram content and Instagram is a short form that's what it's made to do is, is get people short information, short form information. And that can be valuable because it lets people know a little bit about what they don't know. It might actually give them some useful stuff in certain situations, but I would love to hear some of your top threes. So maybe a top three core exercises you feel cyclists most need and, and really more importantly, why you feel they need them. What, what movement pattern are they compensating for? Or really more to the matter is 
how do you think cyclists cores are strong just from riding the bike? And how do you think they're weak? And then therefore we might attack it from that perspective. That's an interesting perspective to think about how the bike is actually helping their core, because I think I spend most of my time focusing on how it doesn't help your core (laughs) and why you need additional core strength. Yep. Um, the, the exercises I thought of, the first one is a little bit boring, but I think it probably is the most valuable thing to teach people. It's a posterior tilt. Mm-hmm. And this is not a exciting looking core movement. Uh, this is something that's very minimal. But if someone were to lay down on their back and put plant their feet so their knees are bent, the a posterior tilt would be basically you moving your pelvis posteriorly and anteriorly anteriorly. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's like I'm talking to my four-year-old right now. And so (laughs) basically for, for you to test this out, it'd be you laying on your back in that position. Most people have that natural arch in their low back and you'd be able to probably put your hand underneath it. Most people know what I'm talking about. Your goal doing a posterior tilt would be to actually press your low back and eliminate that space. And to do that by posterior tilting, which is actually pulling your hips back toward you. Mm -hmm. So in the process of doing this, you would hopefully be engaging your low abs and using your low abs to create the posterior tilt. And the reason that's so important is because for one low ab engagement is huge for eliminating back pain on the bike. Mm -hmm. And for two, a posterior tilt helps people understand how to brace a hip hinge position. If a, a lot of people can get into a hip hinge position but actually not be able to brace. And a lot of times it comes down to not being able to posterior tilt, at least from uh, what I've noticed working with people. Um, And it's also a great opportunity to work your breath with an exercise. And and, and so is the next one I brought up, which is a a pal-off press. I think Mm -hmm. honestly, this is my favorite core exercise, probably for anybody, but especially for cyclists. So this is an exercise you would do with a band or a cable. And you would basically get tension on the band and have it be... Uh, it would be perpendicular to your body. So if I have the handle of the band or the cable in both of my hands centered in my chest, I'd have my feet about shoulder width apart. I would be perpendicular to the cable or band and I'd step out away uh, to give myself some space or some tension. And the band would be going, I guess, across my body. Um, And from there, I would press straight out. And the further away you press the band or cable, the more tension that you're going to feel on your core. Mm -hmm. And what's so good about this is that it's you're you're fighting this lateral force and it's an anti-rotational exercise. So you're fighting your body from rotating. But what's great is because you have to brace while you breathe, which helps work your transverse abdominis. And that stabilizes your spine. It actually decompresses your spine as well. And it teaches people how to brace and breathe at the same time, how to have core activation while you're actually breathing. Mm -hmm. And if you do this exercise, not only are those great things happening internally, but you're working almost every muscle on one side of your body completely. Like that is one of my favorite exercise. Hopefully that visual is enough. And this is a shameless plug, but I have a video breaking down this exercise uh, in depth on my YouTube channel. If you guys want to go check it out. Send and me uh, I think and I'll, I'll put it in our show notes for sure. Oh, cool. It's like a 10 minute breakdown and you guys okay. will see exactly what I'm talking about. Great. Um, and the last one I'll talk about, and I kind of threw this in for a variety because it's really important to work the backside of your body. And, and a lot of people don't realize that, you know, your, your glutes, your hips, your back, and all the way up to your shoulders is really a part of your core as well. Mm. Uh, but just doing a simple Superman laying yeah. on the ground on your stomach, 
arms are out overhead and you basically arch the opposite direction that you would be in on the bike. It is like the most counter bike position movement you can do. And you do it body weight. You can actually hold like a five pound bar overhead or something. That's crazy how much a little weight adds tension to it, but mm -hmm. it's not necessary. I would start out just doing a Superman. The goal, think about this. You're trying to arch and create this like sphere shape with your back, but you want to almost take your right shoulder blade and tuck it into your left butt pocket. Mm -hmm. And you want to take your left shoulder blade and tuck it into your right butt pocket. So as you pull yourself up, you want to draw this X across the center line of your core. And if you do it that way, you're going to get the most benefit from it because it's going to help you pack your shoulders. It's going to help you engage your glutes. And that is just an exercise that most, I, I mean, I, I feel like every cyclist should be doing in some capacity. Yeah, I would agree. That's a great one. What would you typically recommend reps or would you have people hold it statically or how would you prescribe that in most cases? I think you can do both. A lot of times I'll prescribe reps because it's easier to do, uh, you know, not everyone has a stopwatch. Like if mm -hmm. I train someone in person, I would totally have them hold it for 30 seconds at a time, 20 yep. seconds at a time. Yep. Uh, maybe we do, uh, we can mix it up and do, uh, reps for the sets. And then on the last one, we hold it for 20 seconds as a little bit of a burnout, mm. um, just to get a little bit of more time under tension. And mm -hmm. that that's a fun way you can mix it up. So you can do both. Um, uh, but I would say don't let a stopwatch stop you from doing it. If you need to do 10, two second holds, that's just fine. Yeah. Um, and, and if you do it for reps, you can actually alternate too. I don't know if you've ever tried this, but you can just raise your right arm and left leg. Yep. And that will help you get that cross body activation. If you're having a hard time doing mm -hmm. it, uh, based off that visual, I gave. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. Good. Yeah. I think those are great exercises. <clears throat> so really we're educating the client about their, their posterior anterior tilt. What's interesting about that, uh, in your first exercise, we're doing that. And then we're resisting, um, rotation in the transverse plane with the torso and then we're just opening the backside of the body or really working the posterior chain either statically or dynamically to open and offset those, that pattern of flexion that we have in cycling, right? Those are great. Totally. Great, to do all uh, together, essentials. that's a very <clears throat> complete core workout. Mm -hmm. um, for mm -hmm. Almost complete. I mean, we can make it a little bit better, but that would be yeah. a great simple workout for someone yeah. to follow. Three sets of 10 on every movement and yeah. uh, it's a good, good place to start. Good starting place. Yeah. So educating people about their posterior or anterior pelvic tilt and, and where they are. I mean, this is a big part of my movement screen. It's just observing what their pelvis is doing when they squat, when they lunge, when they hip hinge. And you get a really quick feel as just someone dumping into lordosis, we'll say, <clears throat> do they have a increased anterior tilt or do they tend trend towards posterior tilt? And it's interesting because I've heard a couple trainers on other podcasts talk about how their client base, you, you always get a biased sort of uh, group of people that come to you for whatever reason, depending on what, where your marketing is or what your uh, peer group is. And of course, I see bike riders. And I would say the the most cyclists trend towards posterior pelvic tilt as their default. But I've heard trainers say that it's more common for them to see excessive anterior pelvic tilt. Um, and maybe that's people who are doing too much CrossFit and too many squats already or something that they got too much, too much junk in their trunk or whatever. I don't know what's going on, but yeah, that is more rare from my perspective. 
Mm. Uh, but there are times where I've noticed if I cue someone too hard on posterior tilt, this is that compounding effect you mm -hmm. talked about mm -hmm. where they forget that you are supposed to have a natural curve in your spine and neutral spine, and they'll start anterior pelvic tilting too far. And that yep. becomes their neutral. Yep. Um, so it could get excessive for sure. Um, I think you're a hundred percent right on with the, the cueing, like we were talking about cueing people carefully and letting things grow over time with compound interest. I've had clients come to me who have said, yeah, I used to have an anterior pelvic tilt and I, someone told me that. And so they walk around holding their pelvis locked in a vertical orientation at all times. And then lo and behold, now that's what they've got. So just so people understand the spine has three curves and we want those curves to be springy and natural. And we want them in neutral in standing posture to have a certain number of degrees of flexion or extension, depending on which curve we're talking about. And when this happens, the spine does what it's supposed to do, which is absorb shock during gait. And also posture can be defined as the optimal instantaneous axis of rotation of a joint. So when our spine has proper posture, then it can handle loads, right? But the nervous system, of course, has to play a role in that and the muscles have to respond to that force. So I'm getting a bit, um, maybe too technical, but the point that I'm trying to make is we need to be cautious. I guess I'm just reviewing the same point, which is we need to be cautious about how we cure athletes because it can have a very lasting impact on their physiology. Mm -hmm. They take away what we give, offer them as experts in our field and sometimes they run a little too far with it. So, or it manifests over time into some movement pattern that isn't really con productive, constructive, and they can reduce their lumbar curve, right? Yes, they, they running too far with it, I think yeah. is really well said. Mm. And it's even with posture and, you know, considering what you have to do in day-to-day -day life to be a functioning human, you know, we're, we're sitting in chairs right now. Right. And there well, are people that are... Wait a second. Oh, Boom. you're on the Swiss ball. Hey, you know what? You get more points. <laughs> if it makes you feel better, my desk converts to a standing desk and I use okay. it about half the time, but okay. Very good. <laughs> um, man, you got me beat on that one, but I will say, I do notice that people can uh, run with things a little bit too far and yeah, they walk around so stiff because they can't relax a little bit. And I think there's a lot of beauty in having a body that's supple and that can just move and adapt mm -hmm. to whatever situation it's in. And even if that's not great posture at the time, if you're doing a wide variety of movement, that's more than most people in general. So it's not like that sitting in a chair and slumping your shoulders from time to time is horrendous as long as you're counteracting it. So I think it's cool for people to understand that and, and just be able to relax a little bit too. You know, it's, it's exhausting to have this stuff in your mind 24 seven, but thankfully the more you do it with intention, the more it actually becomes autonomous. And that, that is another reason I freaking love my job. It's because it's like, we're doing movements and practicing them in the safest environment possible with intention for a designated period of your day, focus on it, ingrain the movement pattern. And if you do it consistently enough, it's going to become the normal for you. Yeah. And so it's like, let it become autonomous and don't obsess about thinking about it 24 seven. Yep. Um, It'll trickle over I, when it needs. Yeah. To. yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. That's a great point. Um, It makes me think of a parallel in the world of diet. People go through various 
phases of dietary evolution. And maybe they, they eat the standard American diet and they've got good inflammation or they've got joint pain or chronic stuff or ir, you know, irritable bowel disease or whatever. And then they go on this healing journey and they discover some path that's going to help them heal, whatever that is, vegetarianism or carnivore diet or keto or whatever. We put a label on it. And most of the time, just the act of focusing on diet and improving, eliminating the crap that you were eating before will result in some improvement in health. And the challenge comes when people become dogmatic about that improvement and they assume that everyone should be on that path because it helped them heal. One, because bioindividuality rules everything. So kryptonite to one person is rocket fuel for another, right? And that's just the way humans work. But also people, I think, often fail to see that their dietary evolution is an evolution. It, their journey is an evolution, meaning at this moment, they've been vegetarian for two years or four years or five years. That may have brought them to a place of health, but it may also be that over a long enough timeline, that diet will begin to offer them different challenges because it's mm -hmm. deficient in certain nutrients or macronutrients or whatever. And then things have to evolve from there. So there's no people, we all like to think there's an end point. People have the same conversation with me about saddles. They're like, well, I don't understand. I rode the saddle for five years and then all of a sudden I couldn't sit on it. That's so weird. Hmm. That's actually not weird at all. Your body's always adapting to its environment. It's always changing. It That's what bodies do. So you went and trained with Derek last winter and your glutes got stronger and that changed the structure of your pelvis. It allowed more force closure in your pelvis. I'm just sort of making a simple example. And yeah. that subtly, but importantly, changed the width of your ischial tuberosities. Probably probably doesn't happen in the real world, but maybe it does. Or maybe under load, your yeah. SI joints became more stable than they were before. And so a saddle that was a little too wide for you in the past now suddenly is too wide for you to sit on and allow that movement of the SI joints in a way that doesn't irritate the adductors or, you know. Yeah, no, it's a really cool example. And it's a, a term I think of, from some entrepreneurial books I've read is that the, what got you here won't get you there. Yeah, And I think that can be really said for your health and for your fitness. I think uh, cleaning up your diet, becoming dogmatic about it's interesting because this is almost like you learn what is right and then you can become dogmatic about it. Like the, with diet, there's two ways of thinking that are totally contradictory of each other, but I love them both. Mm -hmm. And they've both stuck with me. One of them is, and this is definitely the more dogmatic view, is that everything you eat is either fighting cancer or feeding it. Mm. And another view is there's no such thing as an unhealthy food. Mm -hmm. And that uh, no such thing as an unhealthy food to explain it, because I'm sure a lot of you are thinking of Dairy Queen Donuts. blizzards and Oreos yeah. and whatever. And it's like, oh, that of course, that's unhealthy. But mm. is it unhealthy for someone to eat a single Oreo after a perfect day of eating? Right. And that's the one that is the one thing versus mm. somebody who eats maybe a diet that's so high in fat, they're putting on excessive body or excuse me, so high in calories that yeah. they're putting on excessive body fat, mm -hmm. even though it's the cleanest food in the world, you can still overconsume. Is that ideal for your body? So it's mm. You could argue both points, and I kind of love them both. Again, that's interesting. The fighting cancer or feeding, it's kind of that that Goggins perspective where it's like, you know, yeah, it's kind of badass, and I kind of like it. Yeah. But the other one is like, no, it's true. Like, you know, you can be incredibly healthy and eat a slice of cake. So, it yeah. is just true. I don't know what to say besides the fact that it's true. It. Mm. We all know what is ideal, but I don't know. It's just I. I 
it's just kind of interesting. That's totally interesting. contradictory. So that second paradigm of diet makes me think of the old saying adage, the dose makes the poison, right? This is an example of that. You eat perfect, perfect, perfect meal for the, for three meals for a day for a week straight. And then at the end of that week, can you have one Oreo, Oreo or one bowl of ice cream? Most people would probably say yes. But David Goggins might say, or that perspective might say, well, no, but that's feeding cancer and any amount of cancer is bad cancer uh, would be the contradictory standpoint. I would argue, I, I think those are great perspectives. I love that you shared that. I would argue there are foods, there are bad foods. There are, there are foods that are poisonous straight up. But I only think that's a function of the fact that we live in 2023 and we have made foods that are just unholy gut disasters. There are like hostess fruit <laughs> yeah. pies and, you know, triple decker Domino's pizzas and this stuff. This is not Taco Bell. This is not food. I want to be clear. <laughs> like no one should eat this. This is toxic poison. Do not put that in your body. Your vessel, yeah. you've been blessed yeah, with it's... this biological spacesuit. Man, take care of it. Like, okay, you want to go <laughs> It's on like a... the pink slime from McDonald's. Remember that yeah. whole thing? In the... yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's true. So, That's a good, it's a good point. I'm happy you also, you're even- kind of pushing back on that a little bit because I think it's probably safe to say there's unhealthy foods, but then again, the I dose kind of makes the poison. It, it I mean, does, I, yeah, it's, but there's some gosh, foods I, that have no place in my body. None. I'll, there are certain foods I will never eat just period. Not because I don't like them, but because they're just toxic poison. Why? Would and this is all. Them? Yeah. But there's do plenty you of have other things that you'll, do you have other areas you'll compromise though? You know, like, I think we could both say that, that alcohol plain and simple Mm-hmm. is unhealthy. Yeah. I can't think of a benefit from pure alcohol. Are there other things in wine that are probably good for us? Yes. Right. Right. But alcohol itself, like no bueno. Vodka or no, yeah. well, even the alcohol that comes along with wine with that you wine. ingest, okay. yeah. you know right. what I mean? For example, or yes. gin, I'm, I don't know. I'm trying to think of the cleanest type of alcohol that you would have. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's like, what area will you compromise though too? And this is where it's like, okay, what, is your what's your way to kind of relax and okay what are the other benefits of of alcohol it's like you know you relax relax a little bit glass of wine the whole ambiance community yeah. like all of these things mm-hmm. but then again there's someone who doesn't drink because it's poison it's poison but you know what they're hitting that triple decker pizza occasion <laughs> occasionally yeah right or, so then it's like where do we i don't know so these lines are arbitrary i i will yeah. acknowledge that and i'll say that for me, someone who eats a hostess fruit pie, there's so many chemicals and that food is so highly processed that to me, it's toxic poison. The sugar, the toxic fats, the highly processed you know, white flowers, everything in there, every, the preservatives, uh, the artificial colorings. Mm. Like it's, it's got a carpet bomb of everything that's bad for the human body. Like it's bad from more angles than one. It's bad like than, for that, more angles that, than one. Yeah, that makes sense. Right. And <clears throat> so some people might say, yeah, but the taste is so good. I love those Doritos. They're so delicious. Like, <laughs> and they're addicted to that. And they've got there, of course, also they have MSG in there. So there's an addictive food additive element. So, okay. And so they say, well, for me, it's okay. I accept all that toxic load and it's still an acceptable trade-off. That's what you're getting at is like, where do we, it's not mm. a perfect decision. For me, that food, Hostess Fruit Pie, goes in the toxic food I will never eat again category unless I'm, I don't know, exceptional circumstances, maybe about to die or something weird that we can imagine in the thought experiment. But wine comes in a category, and, and for me, I drink biodynamic organic wine. Uh, 
So it's a little better than other wine, but it's still poison. It's still alcohol. And I drink it in small quantities and I accept as an adult that there's a trade-off there. It's a mixed bag. Uh, but I, as you pointed out, I enjoy some of the other aspects of wine. I like the flavor. I What's like- the biodynamic piece of the processing? Well, I use what that. Do you, as what do you mean by biodynamic? Term. So yeah. biodynamic is um, is a level above organic, depending on which certification you're sort of looking at. Okay. Like, uh, I use one. I'll just call it out. I use a a wine delivery service. It's called Dry Farm Wines. I've heard of them? Yeah. And they really carefully source their wines, usually from European, but not always wine producers. And they're, once you kind of drink their wine, you won't go back to American wine, especially Californian wines that are super syrupy and heavy. And you, you can, it's sort of like the first time you ever had, you, you were used to eating Jif and then you had organic peanut butter that was just made from actual just peanuts. That was the only ingredients and they were organic. Yeah. And you went, how did I eat Jif afterwards? It just tastes like <laughs> oil and sugar. Um, I don't know if everyone's had that experience, but that was my universe when I was like 12. No, I know what you mean. Yeah. So this is the same transition. So you can't unsee it. Once you have a bottle of dry farm, you'll realize how superior it is, but it's still, it's still alcohol. It's still poison. You know, it still kills my cells in my prefrontal cortex. Like it's not a good decision on most accounts, but also I'll say that we're, I'm not on this planet to be monastic. I'm not here to be orthodox. Like I want to live. That's a good point. Like literally is the number one priority to be the healthiest human possible. I mean, I think we have a responsibility to be healthy from a, I would say from a reasonable standpoint, that's skewed based off what you think is reasonable. But yeah, yeah, you do get these people who praise and idolize perfect health. And I think that you are missing, you are missing the point to life a little bit. I don't think that's our real purpose, you know, and it's such a privilege that we can sit down here and talk about performance Mm. and it's an actual thing that we're interested in and prioritize. Like our lives are so comfortable that we can prioritize the workout we're going to do, the fuel that we put in our body, whether or not we drink wine tonight or we have the hostess cupcake or whatever. What is the, you know, the fact that we can even have this discussion and we're not simply worried about where the heck we're going to get food or anything like that is so rad. And Mm. so I'm happy. I mean, I think it's almost a perfect way to wrap up that point because at the end of the day, you can pick apart anything Mm. and is the real point to life to just this, have this pursuit and idolization of perfect health. And, and I just Mm. don't think that's it. you got to draw the line somewhere and live you you really do and that's like with the performance you know i you know i double ever sit on my bike last year it was like one of the gnarliest things i ever did it was the gnarliest thing i've ever done but it and it was not healthy (laughs) like i will tell you that that was not i literally tripled my riding volume and doubled my climbing pr that day yeah and so i tripled my riding volume for a week in one ride and i doubled my pr of climbing uh, in one ride and so it was extreme, super extreme, not healthy, but it was like one of the most rewarding things I've ever done. Mm. And so again, it's like that, it, that was like living to me, you know, mm-hmm. I'm out there with my dad. We popped a bottle of champagne after it was done. We're hugging. Nice. It was just nice. great. Like it was yeah. one of the coolest memories I've had with my, with my dad actually. But you know, it's just one of those moments. It's like, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I think it's a perfect way to wrap it up. It's That's like, you, you can't idolize it to a, to a point, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. That topic. I agree. 
Uh, yeah. I'll just make one last point. The reason I opened that whole part of conversation about diet, which people are probably wondering why I got there, is mm. simply to say that, and this relates to what you were just saying, I, I think people sometimes get off track because they imagine the end point of diet is where you live this orthodox universe where you only eat you know, vegan cheese-free pizza or whatever, whatever their idea of perfect diet is. And there's yeah. two mistakes there. One is that that super orthodox or strict diet is the end point. That's not the end point. The end point is for us to be strong enough biologically, have a strong enough gut to where we can have the hostess fruit pie and we don't have disaster pants afterwards, right? Or horrible inflammation or brain fog or whatever your outcome is. You have a strong enough gut biome, mm. a healthy enough biome that it's resilient enough to deal with everything. That's the misconception that, that some mm, people that's have. good and, and then the second is when they fall off the wagon and they do eat the hostess fruit pie or have the glass of wine or the champagne or whatever they flog themselves because they're not perfect yeah so we both agree on that like it, life is not about perfection but as far as the robustness of your gut biome the same concept applies to strength and conditioning so if, yeah. if we move a cleat two millimeters laterally and someone immediately gets a knee injury this is like, okay, the focus is not the knee and it's not the cleat position. The focus is making you way, way more durable as an athlete because you are far too fragile. You have ridden too many miles and not moved enough in other planes, right? The old saying goes, you are most likely to get injured in the plane in which you do not move. So we're all sagittal, sagittal, sagittal. It's like, what? do some cartwheels, man. What? Let's get a little hmm. rotation going. Move out of that plane. Like get your body loose so that it can handle some strain in a slightly different vector and your knee doesn't lose it every time you move your cleat two mils, or, you know, if you forget mm. to change your cleats for six months and you get a little bit of, of play in this plane, right. Which I had multiple clients come in recently with cleats and shoes and pedals that were all beyond smoked. And I just had to be like, <sighs> okay, <laughs> you can't even really do anything until we get this style. But anyway, the, the goal is to be, to make an athlete that's durable. That's, that's hard to kill. So you can do a double Eversting kind of not out of the blue, but you can significantly increase your training load and your vertical gain and whatever. And it's not like the next day you're like, oh, I threw my back out or my knees toasted or my T-bands on fire for six months afterwards. You right. have the, the movement mechanics to handle that overload and still be okay. Yeah, and then you that's so true. That that's the goal. So dietarily, that's the goal. And in terms of movement, that's the goal. So we're, we're hard to kill. We're durable. That was a mic drop right there, dude. I back <laughs> all that a hundred percent. I got nothing to say. Cause I would just regurgitate the same thing. It's perfect. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I know you're out of time, Derek. Uh, thank you so much for enduring, um, the trials and tribulations of zoom and technology with me and also <laughs> sharing all your thoughts. I feel like it was a great conversation. I feel like we have a lot of common ground and I've got a lot of strength and conditioning philosophies and stuff we didn't really touch on. So who knows, maybe down the road, if you're up for it, we can do another episode or um, chat about more things. We had some other things on our list we didn't get to, but that's okay. Cause I think we had a lot of great content. Hopefully the audience will agree that uh, our conversation was useful for them. So. I hope so, man. And I'd love to have you back on my podcast. Honestly, it was a huge hit. Uh, I got a lot of feedback of just people saying they love the conversation. Cool. So yeah, okay. I agree. It's it's super refreshing to talk to you. Uh, and I know we have a lot of common ground and on the flip side, there's a lot of things I think we could learn from each other, probably more so me learning from you. 
so yeah, I would like to uh, definitely do something like this again. And cool. uh, yeah, I appreciate the time. All right. Thanks. So remind everyone where they can find out more about you just so they know. Yeah, please go to dialedhealth.com. It is all strength training for cyclists. I provide programs off the bike through strength and mobility to make sure that you can be the most durable cyclist and perform as well as possible. Uh, pretty much everything that we talked about today. So go there. Uh, I have a seven day free trial you can try out. And you can also check out my content through Instagram, uh, just at dialed health. You can check it out on YouTube and my own podcast as well. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Derek. Cool. Thanks, Colby. All right. Epilogue. I want to share a few brief thoughts about the inception of cycling and alignment. The purpose of this podcast is for me to get three and a half decades of hard fought lessons out of my skull. Some of them through my own research and reading. Some of them I've been taught through mentors and colleagues, other riders, other racers. A lot of it, a massive amount of it was simply trial and error through my own stubborn methods. And that has amassed a certain amount of experience and knowledge, understanding. And while I think I'm reasonably smart and I know quite a bit of stuff, I want to make it clear that the opinions that I share on this podcast are belief systems built on what I've experienced to this point. And that some of those opinions are pretty strong but they are also loosely held. That is to say that if I learn more about a topic and have a greater level of clarity or understanding, then my old belief systems will be abandoned and I will now operate under that newfound knowledge. So I'm not here to tell people all the things that I know. I'm here to explain what I've learned to this point. And there's a big difference. Also, that is the intent when I discuss things on the pod with guests is to learn from them and have a discourse. Because if we can't have a discourse as adults, then we've lost one of the basic tenets of modern society. Even if we disagree, we ought to be able to, in most cases, shake hands and walk away. Because after all, this is sport we're talking about, and while sport is training for life, it's nothing to get too upset over. The purpose of the podcast is to help me help other people, and specifically to help them actualize their highest potential by illuminating a path that enables alignment with their truth, their intent, and their coherence. That's really the end goal. So I'm grateful for your listening. My intent is also not to be clear to gain an audience or become popular or gain social status in any way. I don't care about that stuff. That said, if you feel an episode that you have heard will help someone you know, please share it with them. That helps us reach the end goal, which is to help more people. Thank you for listening. I'm grateful for your time and attention. Blessings.